Well, I want you to open your Bibles with me today to Colossians chapter 3. We're continuing to walk through this passage. Uh, I walked out here a few moments ago during the first part of the worship, and I, I walked over and I stood next to my son, and, and he looks over at me and he said, uh, you forgot to change, didn't you? Because I had a sport coat that I was going to wear that I wear every week, and, and I was cold this morning, so I wore this jacket, and he, he made fun of me because I, I didn't change. He said, do you want to go back and change now? I said, no, I'm owning it, man. <laughs> so I'm sticking with it, and I'm actually a little bit warmer today right now than I usually am, which is great because it's kind of cold outside, but today we're going to walk through this passage as we continue our study in the book of Colossians. I encourage you in your Bible journals, page uh, 84, you can turn there or open your Bibles or... Uh, if you happen to be one of those who walk through scriptures on your phone or iPad, awesome. Join with us. Let's dig in. I encourage you, get a pen, get ready to highlight, get ready to circle, get ready to underline, uh, get ready to take notes. If you want all of the notes of what we're going to be walking through, uh, you can go to our app, the MyTRBC app, and you can open there. The sermon notes are there. And we're going to walk through today a passage that I believe really kind of helps us to see and understand what we've already walked through in Colossians chapter 1 and chapter 2 uh, of Paul writing to this church at Colossae and saying, hey, listen, be careful because there's people out there who want you to believe things that aren't accurate. They want you to walk in a different path. They want you to do things that are not accurate. And now here, as we continue in this letter that he's writing, he now kind of gets into the part where he says, you know, kinda, because of this, here's what you should do. So in other words, this is like, so, so then part of the passage, so then part of the letter. So he's like, Hey, like there are people who are trying to get you to think things that aren't right, believe things that are wrong. And, and I get that. And I understand that, but you, you are followers of Christ. You have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So then, and that's really what the third chapter of Colossians is all about. It's kind of the, so then chapter of this letter. And so that's what we're going to walk through today. And uh, basically what Paul's kind of given us a picture of is that it's out with the old and in with the new. Out with the old, in with the new. Everything has changed. Everything is transformed, transformed. New creation, new creature. Hey, this is how you live. And so let's just jump right into the passage. Again, page 84, Bible Journal, if you have it. Uh, and let's just kind of read through this statement, this starting with the out with the old, beginning with verse 1. He says, if then... You were raised with Christ. Seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of this earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all of these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all in all. Now, in these first few verses, these first 11 verses of Colossians chapter 3, we're given kind of a very clear picture of Paul setting the standard. Like, hey, these are the things that you need to get rid of in your life. Now, it is not an exhaustive list. 
To be honest with you, there are far more things that we could add to this narrative, that we could include in this list of things, this laundry list here that Paul uh, gives us, that he allows us to read, allows us to see and hear, again, from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that God wants to, uh, to, to help us to recognize and understand. It's not the exhaustive list, but it's a pretty good list. It's a pretty good list of things that we need to make sure that in our journeys, if we are, if we have been made new in Christ, if we've been made alive in Christ, if we were once dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses, but had been made alive in Christ because of his death, burial, and resurrection, that there are some things in our lives that we need to put to death. There are some things in our journey that we need to put in the grave and walk away from and get rid of. And so he gives us this list. He starts with this statement. He says, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. He goes on to add in verse 8, anger, wrath, and malice, and blasphemy, and filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another. In other words, what he's basically saying is like, you've got to live different than the world does. Now, we've talked about this several times over the last couple of weeks. We've, we've kind of walked through and we've kind of heard some different statements that Paul has made, not only in the book of Colossians, but also in other books that we have walked through in this last few months. And clearly, like what Paul expects, in other words, what God expects, because every word that we have studied is words that come directly from the heart of God to the heart of men so that we would know how to live. What God expects is, hey, you can't just live like everybody else. That there is a standard that we must rise to. That there is a statement that we must apply in our own lives and in our hearts that we are not going to live like the world. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. It drives me crazy when I see so often, and I even hear so often, followers of Christ, Christians who say, because I live in liberty, because I live in grace, because I live in freedom, I've been set free because of what Christ, that I can do whatever I want to do. That is a lie that comes directly from Satan himself. That is Satan himself who is trying to deceive you into thinking that because you have been set free, then therefore you are set free from the, the, the actions that, that the world takes, that you can actually stay involved in those things, stay engaged in those things, but you've been set free from the consequences. You have not been set free from the consequences. I see so often lives that are broken, hearts that are that, that destroyed, Marriages that are, are torn apart, ripped apart because of sin that Christians will continue to allow to be present and to be prevalent in their lives because they think, because they show up at church on a Sunday, because there was a time when they said, I believe that Jesus is God's son. He died and rose again for me. I, I trust in him as my Lord and Savior. I, I went to the baptistry and I got baptized because I've done that. I know heaven is mine. I know I'm going to get there one day. Therefore, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And I have seen destruction beyond anything you could possibly imagine. I could stand up here and honestly, I'm not going to do it obviously, but I could sit here and I could recite to you hours and hours of stories of families, of individuals, of people whose lives have been destroyed, whose jobs have been lost, marriages have been thrown apart and thrown away by simply allowing themselves to remain in their former self. And so what Paul says here is, listen, if you're a follower of Christ, man, it's out with the old. Man, if you were raised with Christ, verse 1, then seek those things which are above 
where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. Now remember, when we talked about it back in chapter one, Paul was addressing issues that were present in the church where there were people, the Gnostics, who were trying to believe that this spiritual journey was some kind of a, a mystical experience, that something that was ethereal, it was something that above, it was something that you had to like get yourself to a higher plane to understand. And so that's why Paul uses this language here in the first part of chapter 3 very clearly. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. Now he's using that language because the Gnostics would have understood that language and they would have shared statements like that telling people, hey, you can do whatever you want to down here because you have to think higher. You have to get yourself on a mystical plane, which means it doesn't matter what's happening down here because you're, you're higher than, you're better than, you're smarter than, you have more knowledge than the rest of the world. And so Paul uses this statement, but what he says is set your mind on things that are above and not on the things of the earth, but he makes it very clearly here what we must do is set our minds on Christ. Like who Christ is and what Christ has done. It's not what you know. It's not what you learn. It's not what you can read. It's not what you can hear. It's not what you can be taught. It is Christ and Christ alone. Craig Keener says it this way. The Jewish mystics creating problems at Colossae were probably seeking these upper realms, these higher planes through mystical experiences but Paul only mentions one thing specifically in heaven, Christ. That Christ is the, the main thing, the main thrust in our journey, in our walk with Christ. Like if you get that, if you understand who Christ is through trusting him and believing in him and then running after him and following after him, which means a changing of our hearts, a changing of our actions, a changing of our attitudes. When we understand that, then we will truly experience what God intends for us to experience. Paul gives us this special hope that comes through Christ and Christ alone. And so while the world is sitting there saying, hey, man, like you can do whatever you want to do. If it feels good, do it. Like live however you want to live. It's all about you. It's just like whatever makes you happy, whatever brings you joy, whatever brings you pleasure. And that really is the message of our world today. The message of every commercial that you see, the message of every television program that you might watch or, or any song that you might hear that's you know, popular on the radio today, that, you know, not Christian songs, but uh, secular songs. The, the, the main message behind it is this. It's like, hey, seek pleasure, seek joy, seek whatever makes you happy, seek whatever you want, seek what's good for you. And if you do that, then life is good. And what Paul says, not true. See Christ. Because when you see Christ, what you will find is something that transcends all of those temporal things, those things that are not that important, those things that, that don't last long. The scriptures tell us, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but rather lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. How do we do that? Well, we go back to this passage. Hey, if you've been raised with Christ, if you've been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, if your life has been transformed because of what he has done, therefore, put to death these things. And it gives us this laundry list that we've walked through a couple of times here today. Underline or circle in your Bibles, on your phones, whatever it might be, that statement, therefore, put to death. Put to death. In other words, this is a, a, 
a statement, a, a, a command given by God to each and every one of us to be advocates for capital punishment in our own lives. Now, that does not mean that capital punishment means go out and kill yourself. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, put to death the things that are in your life that will keep you from being who God intends for you to be. Literally murder those things in your life. Now, understanding, that doesn't mean like try to avoid. It doesn't mean like, hey, just do your best and try to stay away from it if you can. No, there's strong language that's given here. Put these things to death. Murder them, shoot them, stab them execute them, get rid of them, and diligently work to make sure that when they are dead, that they will not come back in, right? So in other words, putting something to death is the idea that literally it is no longer alive or present. Now, does that mean that we can get to the place where we will not struggle with or, or battle sin? Of course not. But what it means is that because we put these things to death, that occasionally when there's a time when temptation comes in and, and we're tempted to, to go back to our old ways, we're tempted to allow that sin to kind of sneak back into our journey, that our minds will be conscious of it, our hearts will be conscious, our souls will be conscious of it, and we will recognize the evil that that sin brings because we put it to death. That when it comes back, you'll recognize it for what it is. It is a corpse coming back to life to attack you and destroy you. It's kind of like the, the Halloween version, a horror movie version of putting these things to death in our lives. If you've ever watched a horror movie, if you've ever watched like some you know, scary movie that Hollywood puts out, and they had those shock moments where, you know, the person's walking through a room and, and all of a sudden in the darkness of the moment and they, they turn around and when they do it, all of a sudden, you know, this scary face pops up and, and everybody screams and they scream and, and all that. Kind of, I mean, that happens and we've seen those kinds of things. Like that's the idea that because you put these things to death in your life, that when they might pop their heads back up, when they might show up as a temptation in your life, that it will actually frighten you because you know how evil they really are. There are way too many Christians today who make allowances for sin in this world and in their own lives that when sin shows up, it doesn't scare you. When sin shows up and temptation rears its ugly head trying to grab a hold of you because we've made allowances for, because we've made excuses for, because we're not putting it to death in our daily journey, it doesn't scare us anymore. And we wonder why so often we fall back into the same old way of doing things, while we fall back into sin. Here's why. Because you've not put it to death. Paul says, put this stuff to death. Kill it, shoot it, stab it, whatever it is. Murder it, get rid of it. All of these things that are present in our journeys, out with the old. Make sure that you understand that what God intends for us to do is to recognize it because we've been made alive in Christ, that that stuff is not part of our journey anymore. Max Anders says it this way. The believer is to see everything, including earthly things, against the backdrop of eternity. With a new, a resurrection perspective on life, the eternal is to impact the temporal. And what that means is, is the, the heavenly things that God has promised, that because our minds are fixed on the things above, that promise that comes from Christ, that when the physical, the earthly things come in and begin to try to pull at us, 
that we are evaluating and, and, and kind of posturing all of those things, the things of this world in light of the things of heaven, in light of the things of God. And when you look at it from the perspective, a godly perspective, here's what's happening. That that sin that so easily besets us, that temptation that's always present, that thing that's always trying to pull us back into the old way of doing things. When you set your minds on the things of God, here's what happens. That stuff doesn't look nearly as attractive as it once did. It doesn't have the pull that it once did. The temptation is not as strong as it once was. Now, does that mean the temptation's 100% gone? Of course not. We're human. And we have a sinful nature. And it's something we're going to battle with until the day we die or the day we're raptured into heaven. But when we're setting our minds on the things above, that temptation doesn't have the grip that it once did. The grip gets a little bit lighter and a little bit looser. And it's a little bit, you know, not quite as, 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 as strong as it once was. And that's exactly what God wants from each of us intends for us to live out with the old with which Romans chapter six, verse six says this for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, nailed to the cross, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be. And here's the key word slaves of sin. Will sin continue to be present? course. Will the temptation still be real? Yes. Will we still struggle at times? Of course we will, but we are no longer slaves. And the word slave literally, it it connotes the idea like we don't have a choice. Understand when you have been made alive in Christ and you think, set your mind on the things above that you no longer are slaves to sin. You no longer don't have a choice. Now you have a choice. Because your minds are fixed on the things of God. And so that's the statement he gives us. It's out with the old. Now, if it's out with the old, if we have putting to death those things of the past, if we're putting to death the things of this world, if we're putting to death the things of this earth, then there's a natural response. So while this passage in verse 1 started with if then or so then or therefore, then we move into the next part, verse 12, where there's another so then. If you're putting this stuff to death, if you've changed your way of thinking, if you've changed your way of walking, so then there must be something different, which means now end with the new. Go to verse 12. In verse 12, it says, therefore, or so then, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, and by the way, elect of God, holy and beloved, is not some theological doctrinal statement here that leans towards reformed or non-reformed or Calvinism or whatever. Basically, it means this. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have made the decision that, and believe that Jesus is God's son, that he died and that he rose again, and you have given your life to him, you've given your heart to him, you've made the declaration, I believe in Jesus. Therefore, you are the elect of God. You are holy and beloved. So therefore, if that's who you are, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, this so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you were called in one body and be thankful. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with the grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So do you see the difference now? So verses 1 through 11. 1 through 11, it talks about fornication. It talks about evil speech. It talks about uncleanness. It talks about all of these things that are over here in the old self. And now we get to verses 12 and following, and then we see a totally different picture. In fact, the picture we receive here is a picture that kind of is in concert with what we read in Galatians chapter 5 of the fruits of the Spirit. So in other words, if you're putting to death all the bad stuff, then what you need to do is replace it with all the good stuff. And all the good stuff, all the things that God wants us to have present in our lives, again, that list, man, tender mercies and kindness and humility and meekness and long-suffering and bearing with one another and forgiving one another. And if someone has a complaint against you, that we're forgiving them just as Christ forgave us. And above all things that we put on love. Let me ask you a question. Does that sound like a pretty good place to live? Does that sound like a pretty good world that you want to kind of experience? Like, man, like literally, like if all of us did that, do you think that we would have the division that we have in our culture today? The answer is no. Do you think you'd have the the arguments that take place online and in person over things of the of the age and things of the moment? Things that no, of course not. We wouldn't have those things. Would we have battles and wars like we see taking place in Israel right now? If everyone on the face of the earth put these things on and got rid of the old. Of course, we wouldn't see that. There would be no purpose of war. Battles would not exist because what we would be doing is we'd be living like Christ. Now we can say that and we can put that moniker on the world like if only, if only, if only. And if only the world could do that, if only everybody could live that way, if only people could could transform themselves and, and to do that, that'd be awesome, that'd be great. Here's what I would say to you. If only the church could do that. I mean, it'd be great if the world did. That would be a bonus. That'd be like, you know, the whipped cream on top of a, you know, bowl of ice cream and brownies and chocolate. That'd be awesome. Fantastic if the world would do that. But man, if we could just get the church to do that, it would be transformative. Let me make it a little bit more personal. If only you would do that. If only I would do that. Because here's the thing we need to understand. There is no possible way that any one of us in this room can get the world to do those things. They take it one step further. There's no way that anyone in this room, including me, can get the people in this room to do that. Here's what I know. There's only one person that can get me to the place where I can live with that kind of life, with those kind of attributes present in my journey. There's only one person that can get me to do that. And can you guess who that person is? You're looking at him. And there's only one person that can get you to do that. And it's you. So in other words, the responsibility doesn't sit on the church. The responsibility doesn't sit in the culture. The responsibility doesn't sit on the world. The responsibility doesn't sit in your life group. The responsibility doesn't sit in pastors. The responsibility doesn't sit in family members or friends. It doesn't sit in any place except for in you and you alone. If you are going to be a person whose life is marked by 
tender mercies and kindness and humility and meekness and long suffering and bearing with one another and forgiving one another and love. The only way that's going to happen in you is if you make the decision, that's who I'm going to be. Like you've got to own it. It is you and you alone that can get you to that place. Christ helping, certainly. God giving you the strength to do it, of course. The Holy Spirit present and active and working, if you let him, of course. But it's a decision you've got to make. Because I can't change you. And I can't make you do the right thing. And you can't make me do the right thing. But I can make me do the right thing. And you can make you do the right thing. So if we could only get the church to do what God calls the church to do. That sounds like a, just a, a, a duh statement, doesn't it? If we could only get the church to be the church that God called the church to be. Like you think, well, like, of course the church has got to be what God wants the church to be. The problem is we're not. And the reason is because the church is not a, a corporation. The church is not a, a, a group. The church is not like a, a, a bunch of people together. The church is you and the church is me. And the only way the church can be the church that God intends the church to be is if we are the church that God intends the church to be. It's personal. It's you and it's me. So put these things on. Verse 14 when he says, but put above all these things, put on love. Like that obviously echoes the statement that Jesus made in Matthew chapter 22. The most important thing, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul echoed that in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 when he begins to like dig down a little bit into what love really is. Because we live in a time when love has been redefined. We live in a time, we live in a culture, we live in a season where love is defined by the, the culture and love is defined by Hollywood and love is defined by you know, country music songs or popular songs. Love is defined by you know, what we see online or what memes that we might see or what stories we might watch on Instagram or what, wherever that might be. Like, that's where we allow love to be defined. We're coming up in Christmas season and one thing that we always do, Natalie who's sitting right over here, uh, every year Natalie and I come up and we put together a list of all the cheesy, stupid Christmas movies that we're gonna watch before Christmas comes along. And we go through and we actually do an online search. We do a, like a lot of research to find all of these movies that are like some of the worst made movies ever, uh, the lowest budget movies ever. And we watch these movies and it's kind of our thing. We always do it every year. We try to, we got the list and I actually create on my iPhone, I've got a, a note and I, I create the note with a checklist. Like, you know, you, when you create a note in your, in your phone and it's got the little boxes that you can check off like a to-do list. And I create this list of movies with that to-do list. And as we start watching these movies, I check them off. And our goal is to get to the end of that list every year so we can watch the dumbest movies ever for Christmas, right? I mean, do we do that, right? Am I lying at all? Tell the truth, right? Completely. And so we make this list. We do that, right? And so that's the, the this thing that we do. It's like our thing. It's what we're like really excited about doing. It's awesome. <clears throat> and it's great. First Corinthians 13 is that same checklist, checklist of what love is. And I encourage you, we're not going to read it now in the interest of time, but I encourage you, like take the time to go read first Corinthians chapter 13 and see what does God say love is? Not what does the culture say love is? Not what is, does Hallmark say love is? Not what do the greeting cards industry? No, 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 no. What does God say love is? And you read through that list 
And when you read through that list and say, this is what God defines as love, and then you read this passage in Colossians chapter 3, where God says, so put on love above all else. Think about that statement for a moment. Above all else. In other words, the statement is given. It is the most important thing. Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, the most important thing, put on love. And again, if we could do that, then it would be a lot easier for us to do what verse 15 says. And what does verse 15 say? It says this, and let the peace of God rule. In other words, it is in charge. It drives you. It defines you. It directs you. It corrects you. The peace of God ruling. And then verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That word dwell there, if you dig into the the Greek for the word dwell, it literally means like a house, like an abode. In other words, it's not something that you know. It's not something that occasionally you kind of grab a hold of. It's not something like every once in a while you're going to kind of dig into it and spend a little bit of time going deeper. No, what it literally means is let the word of God have a home in you. It dwells in you. It's not like an occasional visitor. It's not a Sunday morning visitor. It's not an occasional once in a while in a small group, life group, community group setting visitor. It's like it lives inside of me. How can the word of God live inside of you? And somebody, how do you make sure the word of God lives inside of you? Somebody yell it out. You have to allow it in, right? You have to invite it in. If somebody comes to my house and knocks on the door this afternoon, they can sit there and they can knock all day long. But if I don't go open the door and let them in, they're not going to come into my house, right? Well, they might, but I'm going to call the cops. And as I'm calling the cops, I'm going to grab my Glock. I mean, they're not doing it, right? But if I open the door and invite them in, then they can come in. The same thing's true of the Word of God. How do you let the Word of Christ dwell richly? You invite it in. And it's daily. It's part of, the, it's like a home. It has a home in your life. And so here we are, out with the old, great. In with the new, fantastic. So what does that do then? So if we allow the old to be put away and we let the in, the new come in, then naturally, the natural response from that is this. It will change your lives. It's going to change your life. And if it changes your life, it's going to change how you treat one another. It's going to change how you act towards one another. It's going to change how you respond in conflict with one another. It's going to change how you deal with issues and problems in your life. It's going to change. So let's go back to the passage and read verse 18. This is the part I've been looking forward to all week. Wives, submit to your husbands. Yeah, amen. You are in trouble. We're... So, so, so my wife this week, Sherry, on Tuesday, she fell down the steps and broke her ankle. And um, so she is at home today. She's not at church. She has a broken ankle, might have to have surgery. And I think that was God's gift to me that I preach on submitting to your husbands. And I knew she wouldn't be on the front row looking at me when I said that. I'm just kidding. Uh, actually, I'm not kidding. That's very true. It's great. But no, wives, submit to your husbands. Okay, let's keep reading. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, 
not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily, heartily as to the Lord, um, heartily to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done. And there is no partiality. All right. So I can't just throw out there, wives, submit to your husbands and then like say, God bless you. Have a good day. So let's dig into it. Like, what does that mean? Now, I know that there are a lot of people today, there are pastors today who read something like this and share it from a church and they begin to nuance it and change it and tweak it to try to make it more palatable in 2023 so people don't get upset and think, how dare you? That's a misogynist statement. You shouldn't say that. So let me just say this right up front. When it says, wives, submit to your husbands, the word there, uh, the Greek word for the word submit is the Greek word hypotasso, which literally means to be subject to or to be subordinate to. So I'm not going to mince words here and try to nuance it and try to make it sound like, oh, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that. It actually does say, women, you are to subordinate yourselves to your husbands. Now, I know some people, you know, there, there are some feminists out there watching right now who are going to get angry with what, what I'm saying. I didn't say it. God did. God said, women, submit, subordinate yourself to your husbands. Okay. Now, it goes on to say, as is fitting to the Lord. In other words, you're doing this again, and we're going to end in the passage talking about this. It's not because of that person, because of that man that you married. It's because that's what God intends and that you're doing it because God has said it. You're doing it to the Lord. But now understand this, because there are men sitting out there right now who are sitting there, man, they're getting, their heads are getting bigger. You know, they're kind of puffing up their chest. They're, they're flexing their muscles a little bit. Like they're feeling pretty good about themselves. Like, well, well I knew I was in charge. I know God wants me in charge. Man, let me just say this to you. And we're getting the next part of this passage proves it and says it. The reason so often that women do not subject and subordinate themselves to you is because you are not loving them the way that God intended for you to love them. It happens not because the women are doing something wrong. It's because the men are doing something wrong. This passage, don't clap. I mean, the women are like, yeah, get them, go get them. Okay, so the passage says, and husbands, love your wives. And that word love there is not the word love like eros, which is like an, a romantic uh, erotic love that Hollywood would say. It's not philos, which is like a friendship love. It's agape. It's the agape love. And when you look up the definition of agape, here's what it says. A sacrificial, unconditional love, the same kind of love that Christ had when he laid down his life for all of mankind. So guys, here's what I'll tell you. If you want your wife to be the Colossians chapter three type of wife that is subject to, that submits to, that is subordinate to you as the spiritual head of your household, then stop acting like the world and stop loving her the way Christ loved you and Christ loved all of us. Treat her with that kind of unconditional sacrificial love and you will not have a problem. Guys, it's your fault, not the women. Now you can clap, women. Okay, I'll give you the permission. I mean, that's true. That, that's what God says. And so he's clearly in this passage. And husbands, love your wives. Love your wives. Agape love. Love them as God. Christ loved the church. Man, do not be bitter towards them. Guys, anytime you sit there and complain. Now, I know there's outliers in every situation, okay? I know there are some women who godly men are doing the right thing and women are not. I get it. 
And I know that there are some women out there doing the godly thing, like doing the right thing, and the men are not. I get it. I understand it. But we're the body of Christ, right? So the assumption should be made in this room that women are going to act like women that God intended for you to act, and men are going to act like the men that God intended for you to be. Like that We're going to act the right way. That's the assumption. It's not the rule. It's the assumption. And if that's true, then listen, get it. Yes, guys, love your wife in a sacrificial and an unconditional way. And I would submit to you that the chances of that wife of yours beginning to respond to you in that way that Christ intends for us to respond in Colossians chapter three of submitting, being subject, being subordinate to, that would not be that big of the deal for your wife if you were acting the way God intended for you to act. It's a two-way street. It cannot happen unless you're both responding in the right way. The Bible does not say, women, that you're supposed to submit to your husbands, no matter what your husband does. If he is an angry person, if he gets drunk on Friday night, comes home and beats you, God does not say that you're to submit to your husbands in that setting. In fact, what God tells you ought to do is get away from that. Get out of that situation. God God never called a woman to be subject to that kind of abuse and that kind of attack, God did not intend for you to do that. What God intends is for you to be subordinate to a man who is a godly man, seeking God with all of his heart, running after him and loving him with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving you in the same way Christ loved all of us. That's what God intends. So ladies, do that. Men, do that. And then we'll have no problem. We won't have an issue of, of, of feminism. We won't have an issue of people attacking one another. And I can't believe you said that women are supposed to be subordinate. To, hey, we wouldn't have that problem if the men acted like men. And not a wishy-washy, feminized man that Hollywood wants men to be. This idea that men are no longer supposed to be men. That we're no longer supposed to be chivalrous. That we're no longer supposed to be strong. That is a Hollywood lie that comes from the pit of hell. Men should be men. And the women in this room, I would dare say, I don't know you because I don't think like a woman. I've been married to one for 31 years and I do not think like a woman. But here's what I know and here's what I believe with all my heart, that there's not a woman in this room that doesn't want that kind of man. I don't think there's a woman in here that says, man, I really want a wimp for a husband. Man, I really want like just a milk toast husband to spend the rest of my life with. I want a husband I can walk all over every single day. I mean, that, that, that's, there's not a woman. Okay, women, tell me, is there someone here that wants that kind of man? Just raise your hand. I want to, you want to, okay. You did raise your hand. Hold on, come on. We're not done. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Kim, come on. Would you stand for me real quick? Okay, so I'm doing this just in, for the sake of all the milk toast men in the room. No, please. No. She's single and looking right here. I'm just kidding. I know her. And I know you didn't. I know you don't mean that. that was, yeah. But no woman wants that. What women want is a man of God who is a strong man of God who will lead that home according to godly principles, walking with Christ, living for Christ, looking like Christ, and loving like Christ. That is what every woman in this room and every room should want and does want. I believe that with all my heart. So men, if you want a great marriage, it's up to you to start acting like Christ intended for you to act. And that's what this passage says. And it goes on to say, we'll just briefly hit it because it's not nearly as controversial. Children obey your parents. Children obey your parents. 
Like this is what you should do. In fact, it's actually part of the Ten Commandments what we're supposed to do there. It goes on to say uh, that we are to employers and employee relationships. It uses the word bondservant here. The idea at that time, it was slave. And yes, there, there was slavery at this time. And it was wrong. And it's certainly not a good thing. We certainly don't advocate for that. But the same nature, the same uh, part of that is today where employers and employees exist and people work for people and you have bosses. And what it says here, and it ends with this passage stating this, is like you are to work to honor Christ. You're not supposed to work with the idea that when your boss is around, you're going to do a good job. And when the boss walks out of the room, you're going to do whatever you want. That you're going to bad talk him and bad mouth him. You're not going to do that kind of stuff. That if your boss comes in and, and you, you try to you know, put on a game face and like, you know, kiss up. And when she leaves, you're like, yeah, that's such a jerk. I don't like her at all. Like, that's not, you're doing this not for her, or not for him. You're doing this as to Christ. And so it says like, serve in that way. And so we understand there's three motivations that are given to us this is verse 24 and 25. That if you do that the right way, here's what will happen. Number one, that we know that from the Lord, you'll receive the reward of your inheritance. If you do this right, God will reward you. Secondly, that we do this to serve Christ, not an individual. Wives, you're not submitting to your husband to serve him. You're submitting to your husband to serve Christ. Husbands, you are loving your wives, not for your wife, but you're doing it to serve Christ. Employees, you are doing that, serving well, not because you're serving your boss, you're serving Christ. Children, you obey your parents, not because you are serving them. It's because you're serving Christ, because it's a Christ-like response. So let me just give you quickly a couple, just three quick thoughts to end our sermon, okay? The first one is this. Application of everything we've talked about, kind of a summary, comes from verse two. The first one is this, change your thinking. Like right here today, decide, I'm going to change the way I think. I'm going to stop thinking about the things that are evil. I'm going to stop thinking about the things of this world. And I'm going to start thinking about the things that are heavenly and godly. Now, what that might mean is that you've got to stop watching some of the TV shows you watch. It means you've got to stop listening to some of the stuff you listen to. It means you've got to stop watching movies maybe that you watch. It means, and listen to me clearly, it means you might need to stop going to websites that you go to. Because it is impossible to change your thinking if you're constantly soaking in the things of this world. So we have to change our thinking. Second thing, wrestle against your nature. It is in your nature to do the wrong thing. Every person in this room, including me, it is, a, it is nature. It is like who we are. Our natural proclivity is to do that which is wrong because we have a sinful nature. So therefore, we have to wrestle against our nature. And so that's why it says in verse 12 and 14, put on tender mercies and kindness and humility and meekness and long suffering, bear with one another, forgive one another, love one another. Here's why that is not naturally part of your makeup to do those things. It's part of your makeup to look out for yourself and yourself alone. So we have to wrestle against our nature. And then the third thing is this, accept that every thought and every act is for him. Every thought that you have, every thought that you harbor, every action you take, it is all for him, which is what verse 23 says. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for the very clear and practical advice that today we have read in your word. God, I pray that you would help us because it's against our nature to do it. But I pray that you would help us to instill that into our lives and our hearts and our minds. That we would act the right way, think the right way, put off the old and bring on the new. That God, that is who we want to be. So help us to do it. And God, if there's somebody here today that when we had this, this talk about uh, this, this old being gone, the new coming and, and once being dead in our sins, but now being made alive in Christ, God, that that's a foreign uh, concept to them because they don't know Christ. God, I pray in this moment that they will hear the truth of the gospel, that God loves them no matter who they are and what they've done, that Christ died for them, that he was buried and rose again for them. And that if they would simply turn from their sin and believe in him, they would be saved. God, I pray that in this moment, that's the decision that would be made. And for that, we give you praise. We give you glory. With our heads bowed and with our eyes closed, we do this every week. Nothing new. For those of you who have been part of this church for a while, I'm going to say this again. And you hear it every week and you might even could recite it. But the altar is open. Our team is here. We have a team of men and women here that would love to talk with you, pray with you. Uh, help you understand a lot about what I just talked about. Take it, take you deeper into those thoughts. If you need a Bible, when we've got Bibles, we'll give to you free. If we've got, like, how do I get started in this walk with it? We've got books that we'll give to you for free. If you don't know Christ, they would love to talk with you about that and pray with you about that and help you understand who Christ is and what he's done. If you want to come and kneel here on your own and pray about a situation that's going on in your life, man, the altar's open. If you want to come and join our church family, fantastic. We'd love to have you be a part. If you want to come and, and you want to be baptized, we'd love to talk with you about that. Like whatever God is speaking to you in a moment, I'm going to close our service in prayer and the altar's open. And I encourage you that whatever God is speaking to you about today, whatever he's calling you to do today, do it. Because if God is calling you, the most important thing you could ever do is answer whatever that question or calling might be. And so I encourage you, the altar's open. In a moment, we'd love to talk with you today. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for Christ. We thank you that he died and rose again. And I pray that there will not be one person who leaves this room without absolutely knowing that Christ is Lord of their life and that they walk out of here today with a commitment that they are going to act new because of Christ. And for that, we give you praise. We give you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Altars open. We'd love to talk with you, pray with you. Read Colossians 4 for next week. God bless you.